Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. How many of you have siblings? Siblings, yes. Um, siblings are great and terrible. Um, <laughs> because that's just the way it is. And, and uh, you know, if you have siblings, then no matter how great of job your parents do, no matter how great your siblings are, there are always some kind of issues. And, and there, there's just this reality that, that if you, if you are more than an only child, then you run into this thing where somebody is inevitably the plumb line of comparison. And maybe it switches around, but, but there's that thing that, 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 that one is, while they're not perfect, they kind of seem to be able, in your opinion, in your view, they can do no wrong. And they're always getting out of things and things like that. And when you're the one who's seen like that, there comes other issues with that. And it's, and it's interesting. So like I have a sister, she's three years younger than me. My dad has one sister. She's actually three years younger than him. And um, it was interesting because uh, I found out when I was an adult and I was married and I had my own kids, my, my aunt told me that my dad and her had this agreement that they would never tell stories about each other's each other to their kids because they had too much dirt on each other and it would make them look bad and, and um, un, uh, unbelievable as a child to a parent, like that, that well, you did this. And so they, they wouldn't tell stories about each other to each other's kids. And that didn't start happening until later in life for me when I was grown, adult, that kind of thing. So then, you know, it kind of didn't matter. And so one, one, of, my, one of my favorite stories about my, my dad and, and his sister, um, they, lived, they lived kind of in the country outside of Detroit, Michigan in a town called Northville. And uh, like my dad rode his horse to school, the little one-room schoolhouse that he went to. But as, as they got older... Um, they, they were, obviously, it was the time of, you know, like um, old fast cars, which were new fast cars at that time, um, if you were there. And, and so, you know, those, those classic cars that, that people get and they, you know, show off and that kind of thing. Well, those were just normal driving cars a, in that day. And uh, my grandpa, I, I don't remember, I can't remember what car it was, but he had something that was fairly fast. And uh, like my dad would in high school race, you know, there was the big thing to go out and race and that kind of thing. And um, what was interesting is my aunt, my aunt Marianne, uh, in, in, in a, as a 10th grader, she got a reputation with the boys in school. Now, it's not what you think. Um, they were afraid to race her because she always beat them. And so nobody wanted to race Marianne in her dad's car because she would get the better of them. And what she would do is she would, she would wait for my grandparents to fall asleep at night and she would roll my grandpa's car out of the garage and then she would start it up a little bit down the road and then go race and beat the, um, kind of put the boys in their place uh, when she would race. Well, so that my grandpa wouldn't know that she was doing this, she would come home, and before she got home, she would put the car up on blocks, 
and put it in reverse and roll back the miles on the odometer. Now that doesn't work with cars today, but it did. It was a, it was a long kind of arduous deal because it took a while to roll miles back, but she did it. And so, so my grandpa would never, never notice the odometer that there was more miles than he thought there should be. But my grandpa also wasn't dumb and he began to notice there was a lot more tire wear on his car and sometimes it ran funny when he would drive it. And it, for a while he just kind of had his, he had his thoughts and wondered about what was going on. And so eventually he figured it out and he figured out that my dad was taking the car and racing. And so he confronted my dad and said, you've been taking the car. My dad was like, no, I haven't. It's, it's like, it, it's my sister. And my grandpa would have none of his lies and say, absolutely not. Marianne would not do that. She's truthful, unlike you. And, and, so, and so he got blamed for the car and got in all kinds of trouble. And, and like, it's one of those things where like, that just happens. And I'm sure that if you have siblings, you've probably been at one point or another blamed for something you did not do and they got away with it. And that's just something that happens when you, you grow up in a family and you have siblings. Um, you know, it's called sibling, it turns into something called sibling rivalry, and it's interesting, some of the common causes of sibling rivalry is sometimes you, the need to be noticed. You want to be noticed, especially when you're with others, and, and you want to get that attention. Sometimes, as, as well as parents try, sometimes there is a perceived unequal treatment between siblings, and that kind of results in some issues between them. Sometimes it's just jealousy. Uh, sometimes it's competition. Uh, sometimes it's frustration, whatever it is, uh, you know, we've probably experienced some of those things. But think for a second, what if your oldest brother was Jesus? I feel like that's a rough, that's a rough growing up experience. Not because, I mean, Jesus would probably be a way better older brother growing up than most older brothers. However, I mean, you know, imagine, you know, that statement that you hear that, you know, probably isn't the best parenting technique, but why don't you, can't you be like your older sibling or something like that? Like, I just wonder if like at any point, Mary or Joseph said something to like one of the young, like maybe James, one of the half brothers of Jesus, like, James, why can't you be more like Jesus? You're like, I'm trying. I don't know. I don't, I, and like, I, like, that's just probably not something you want to hear when it's an actual Jesus as your older brother in that moment. Uh, and, and, and so like thinking about the fact that that's not a hypothetical thing, for a very small, unique group of people growing up in the early first century, but that's an actual thing. And it's, it's interesting because um, in Scripture, in the Gospels, we read that Jesus performed his first miracle at a, at a wedding in Cana. And um, we, we know that to be true based on the, the, uh, the, the account in the Gospels. But there's some other stories about Jesus when he was young, like in elementary school and in kind of high school, you know, like a, young, a younger kid um, that aren't actually true. But like we as human beings tend to want to do, we like to make stuff up and we like to fill in blanks that oftentimes aren't even accurate. But there's some apocryphal fake stories about Jesus when he was growing up. And kind of interesting nonetheless, like there's a story about how, not a big deal, but kind of he, he purified water that was contaminated. And obviously this, these stories aren't true because Jesus didn't do any miracles until he was, he was at that wedding. But, but then there's another story that Jesus on the playground 
would uh, take clay and make pigeons and then poof, make them come to life, like early, you know, David Copperfield stuff. And, um, and, then, and then there's some, some, you know, false stories about how one of his playmates died and so he raised him from the recess field. Um, I would assume uh, there was maybe, a, you know, I mean, if that, was, if that were to be true, I'm sure that like, if a bully on the recess field died, probably didn't raise him. But, uh, but anyway, and then there's another, another story about how uh, Jesus was working in the shop with Joseph, and Joseph, of course, cut a board too, too, too short, and so Jesus just lengthened it. Um, and uh, again, uh, not stories that are accurate. I think, I think one of the ones that, that I feel like would be kind of more interesting is, is one about James, that, uh, that they were playing together and James got bit by a poisonous snake and so Jesus healed him from the snake bite, um, which I, I want that one to be true. Um, I want that one to not just go hiking with Jesus and not worry about getting bit by anything. But, uh, but obviously all of those things aren't true. But what is true that we read in the Gospels that by age 12, Jesus knew his purpose and he was about his father's business. If you remember the story where uh, Mary and Joseph take their family and they go to Jerusalem to the temple. And then they're going back in a caravan of people and, and they're, 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 they're a long way from Jerusalem and they realize that they've forgotten Jesus, that Jesus isn't with them. And I mean, nobody does that kind of thing. And that doesn't happen. Um, but but they, they left him and so they, they kind of go back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus in the temple and, and, and Mary and Joseph are pretty, pretty hyped up a little bit. And, and so they say, you know, what's going on? And Jesus says, um, you should have known that I would be about my father's business. And so at 12, Jesus had a sense of purpose in what he was here to do. Um, not a lot of 12-year-olds have a sense of purpose. I mean, I know a lot of 12-year-olds who have a scent, um, which isn't awesome, but they have, but none of them have a sense of purpose of what they're supposed to do in life. And I would guess that at that point, probably Jesus and, and his siblings, that would be, that would be tough um, growing up with, with uh, an, an oldest brother who was so focused and so purposeful with what, what he did. And, and so uh, all that to say that, that um, that's kind of the context, at least early context, that the writer of the letter of James grew up in. James was Jesus' half-brother. We know Jesus was born through an act of the Holy Spirit through Mary, but then he had half-siblings half growing up. The Bible talks about uh, Jesus having siblings. And so that's what James early on grew up in. And, and what's interesting is, is we've been talking about what does it look like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? We've been unpacking that these last few months. And I think, I think the, the, the book of James is such a good next step because so much of the kingdom behavior, what we are called to do as citizens in God's kingdom is, is found in Jesus' teaching, especially in, thing, in like Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about what does it look like to be a citizen? What does the character and the behavior look like? And, and so James is intimately connected to the teachings of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, as you look at the, 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 the letter of James and Jesus' teaching in Matthew. Um, James unpacks in a very practical way how to live as citizens in a world that is very different, in fact, opposite to the things Jesus calls us to, the things Jesus teaches us to be about. 
And, and so James, as I said, is the half-brother of Jesus. We, we know that from the Gospels. We know that from uh, Josephus, who was a historian that was hired by the Roman Empire to, to keep records of what was going on in Israel during the time of their occupation. Uh, James is, um, James wasn't always in favor of Jesus, nor was he a believer for a long time. We, again, we know this from some of the, the gospel stories, um, that James and the rest of his siblings would mock Jesus and, and didn't really believe that he was who he said he was. In John chapter seven, starting verse three, it says, uh, so, so his brother said to him, Jesus, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And so James wasn't an early, ado early adopter of Jesus' message and teaching. He was born and raised in Judaism, and, and, and he believed those things, but he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah early on. In fact, there were times, at least once, that Scripture records that Jesus' siblings and family were, were concerned about his mental health. In Mark chapter three, it says, then he went home and the crowd gathered there again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Um, so, so James wasn't someone who jumped on board with Jesus early on, but at some point, James became a very strong believer in the message of Jesus. And it was sometime after his crucifixion and resurrection because James was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is defending his ministry, but he writes this. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Talks about how Jesus interacted with James after his resurrection. And we read from the end of the Gospels and Acts that, that James was really maybe the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the flagship, the original church in Christianity after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. Um, in Acts 15, James gives a speech to the council as they're in Jerusalem as they're talking about what it looks like to move forward in Christianity and the gospel message. Um, later in Galatians 2, uh, Paul talks a little bit about how his ministry was endorsed and commissioned by James. It says in Galatians 2.9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, that's in the church of Jerusalem, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. And so, so James was part of that launch of Paul's missionary occupation, his missionary journeys. And what we know from history is that James died a martyr. He was killed by the Jewish leaders for crimes against the temple and crimes against the Jewish law. 
And uh, we know that, that we have a kind of a range of when that happened. That probably happened sometime between 62 and 69 AD. And if you know anything about your, your history in that time, it was 70 AD that the, the temple in Jerusalem was completely demolished by the Roman Empire. And so James, James was, was martyred, he was killed um, during that time that persecution was increasing and came to a pretty high point um, when, the, when the temple was, was destroyed. And so, so James writes this letter, this guy who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is uh, a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, in fact, probably kind of the senior pastor at that church, uh, serving alongside with Peter and, and John, the apostles. And, and it's interesting, if you've, if you've grown up in the church or you've had conversations about the Bible and, and how it came together and, and James, um, what you'll find is, is sometimes there's uh, arguments between Christians about, well, you know, James feels really works heavy and, you know, Paul talks all about the grace of God and salvation through faith alone and James seemed to, 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 to blur the line a little bit and you have those conversations with people. And it is interesting that James was a, a later adoption in the canon of Scripture, the canon of Scripture being the Bibles that we, that we hold, the books of the Bible that were, that were recognized as authoritative and inspired by the Holy Spirit and is the Word of God. Um, James was kind of a later adoption into that. And um, it's interesting because the book of James was never rejected from the authoritative Word of God. It was just more neglected. Interesting thing that was happening even in the early church that I don't know, maybe this will be something that we can relate to, but there was a preference to read and talk about scripture from a theological debate perspective rather than just to look at those practical things scripture says. You see, James is a super practical book super practical, super clear. What it says is what you're supposed to do. And there's not a lot of theological concepts that people can kind of get into discussions about. And the early church was, was kind of, uh, they were symptomatic of, of wanting to have big theological conversations about what this could mean or couldn't mean or disagree with rather than kind of do the thing that is really clear right in front of us. You know, we don't, like, when, when James says, stop talking and start listening, eh, let's, you know, let's talk about, do you think, what do you think about predestination? Like, we'd much rather do that. We'd much rather, rather talk about things that maybe uh, require us to be talking and ex extolling our knowledge as opposed to just actually obeying the clear scripture that, that is very, very much practical and right out there. And so that was one of the reasons that, that James was neglected in, in, in some ways in, in, the, in the growth of, of, of the church. Um, also, there was some misrepresentation by early heretical groups, which was pretty common of scripture in that day and today. There's groups that will misuse and misinterpret and, and, mis, um, and misrepresent scripture. Um, we see that all the time. And James was a, a target of misrepresentation. Uh, and, and so really, um, James is, again, it's just super practical. And in the heart of the letter, here's what's interesting. James depends more than any other New Testament book 
I'm not talking about the Gospels because the Gospels are the story of the life of Jesus. But more than any other New Testament book, James depends on the teachings of Jesus by far. Particularly the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And I think here's, here's what we need to understand about who James was. James was so soaked in the atmosphere of Jesus' teaching that he could reflect them almost unconsciously. Like James doesn't even have to start talking about Jesus. He just thinks and talks like Jesus because he's so immersed in the atmosphere of Jesus' teaching. And, and, and what's also interesting is kind of the, the structure of James is pretty interesting as well because it, it doesn't really read like a lot of the other letters or books because it feels like it jumps from one thing to another. It feels like maybe James is, 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 is distracted or he's kind of like has a short attention span and one, he's talking about this, now he's talking about something else in, in the same set of verses. And really, James is structured a lot like wisdom literature or, or Proverbs in particular, there's many, many concerns in James that parallel the themes of wisdom literature like speech and uh, wealth and poverty and, and things like that. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that there's this challenging wisdom speeches about loving God and loving our neighbor in, in, in the writings of James. And, and so really, if... If you, if you wanna look at the Bible as a whole, you see that James really comes right out of Matthew 5 through 7, and it looks a lot like, and it reads a lot like, really the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs. Here's why James wrote what he wrote. James wrote to what was called the Jewish diaspora. And those were the, the, the Jewish, both Jewish and Jewish Christians who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire as persecution began to increase in the, in the first century. In fact, the Jews were forced from their homes and really their country, and they ended up being in different places, often characterized by living in poverty and oppressive conditions. And so that's the situation of the people that James is writing to. Many of those people were influenced by the Zealot movement, which was a Jewish political movement which held to the teachings of the Torah, the first five books of the, the Bible, and used the tool of activism, even sometimes approving of violence because they saw Rome as an illegitimate government, which I know that none of us can imagine what that looks like because we live in a time of enlightenment and peace and intelligence, so we, we can't really relate to anything like that. But, but that's the situation that many of them were in. And so there was a range of these people who are, who are gonna get James's letter that are from this point of, well, I don't, I don't even know what we can do because we, we have nothing and we have no influence and we don't even know what to do. And then others who were kind of like, hey, we're gonna fight back and we're gonna take back what's ours because the government's illegitimate and, and this is ours and, and God gave it to us and we deserve it. And so there's this range of how they're thinking and they're living. And, and, and the message of James is actually a call to repentance from compromising what they're called to do spiritually and to intervene in the lives of people who are straying down that kind of path. Basically saying that, that look, there's things that, that are part of your behavior and your character that are not reflecting Jesus 
And not only do you need to work on those in yourself, but you also need to look at those around you who are going down a wrong path. You see, the displaced status of these Jewish Christians had brought to the surface some basic spiritual issues. And it is to those spiritual issues that James directs his exhortations. Think about that for a second. They are facing difficulty in their lives to the point where they're being separated from each other and they're ending up in different places. They don't get access to each other. They're finding that they're being more and more persecuted. They're being oppressed. They certainly aren't favored. They've lost, some of them have lost their homes. They've lost their country. And all of those things has served to bring some issues that were underneath in their walk with Christ and it has surfaced some things that are, don't look like Jesus in them. And these things were always there, but it took this situation to bring those things out. Does that sound at all familiar? Like, has anyone experienced something like that? It, it's pretty interesting how relevant and present the book of James is to us today. We are not that much different than the Jewish believers that James writes to in this letter. And, 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 so, and so really, if you have your Bibles, let's jump to James chapter one. I'm just gonna look at the first four verses. And what I wanna do this morning is set our perspective and kind of a framework for how we are going to walk into the study of James. And so James, in James chapter one, starting in verse one, he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says, first of all, he introduces himself, and it's kind of interesting how he introduces himself. He introduces himself as a servant, or it's the same word for slave, a slave of God and of Christ Jesus. If you remember recently, we talked about how really there are two places that we can exist in our lifetime, either a slave to God or a slave to sin. We are one or the other. And obviously James, as he introduces himself, sees himself as a slave of God. Now there's, I don't know if you've thought about this, but, but a question popped up into my mind. Why wouldn't James, being the half-brother of Jesus, leverage that for his letter? Like, it's all about who you know and your connections, right? It's all about who you move with, who, you know, like, like my claim to fame is that in high school, I went to high school and the people I hung out with, um, I don't know why they hung out with me, but, but we would play basketball all summer and um, we would have to go to different parks because they would ruin all the rims 
because um, one of the guys who played with us was Chris Weber, who was a professional basketball player for a while, if, if you know who he is. But that's like my claim to fame. I, I got dunked over by Chris Weber, which was awesome um, for a short white guy. Um, and, so, and so that was great. But, but it's kind of like, you know, you leverage the, the people you know, but James doesn't say, I'm writing uh, a servant of God and the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And I think he does that because he does, I don't think he mentions his familial connection to Jesus. And I think it's because James knows that what qualifies him to write this letter is not his physical relationship to Jesus, but his spiritual relationship of surrender. And I think we have to remember that, that your influence and your importance of what you say is related directly to the degree of surrender that you have made to Jesus Christ. It's not about your title. It's not about what church you go to. It's not about what you've experienced in life. It is directly related to your degree of surrender to Jesus. That's what makes what you say important. And I think James got that. And so James says to kind of frame the whole thing, he, he meets these believers where they're at in the, in right out of the gate because they are in a difficult situation. They're in a trial. It is, it is, it, there's no end on the horizon. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance and let that have its full effect that the gold you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And, and, and so here he says, look, the goal is that you would be spiritually whole, have integrity, mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. And what he's saying here is that, that God brings difficulties into life for a purpose which will be accomplished when we respond rightly to them. But I want you to catch something. There's something that God does and something that we do. Not all difficulties in life will result in, in, in you growing. The difficulties in life that will result in your growth are the ones that you respond rightly to. The ones that you respond to with a surrender and a trust in Christ. And, and James is recognizing that in this. He says, when you experience, he says, count it all joy. All of, he says, all joy. And he says, count it all joy when you face various trials. So he casts this wide net over trials. It could be poverty, which these believers were facing. It could be persecution, which these believers were facing. It could be sickness, which I'm sure many of these believers were facing because of what they lacked. It could be loneliness, which I'm sure these believers were facing because they were separated from the people and the communities that they were a part of. It could be bereavement. We know they lost people, not only to martyrdom, but also to, to things that happened that, that aren't even predictable or controllable. It could be simple disappointment, which I'm sure lots of these people were disappointed. But he says, Count it all joy when you face various trials, things that you don't deserve, things that you didn't cause. But even though trials 
and James understands, will be accompanied with sadness and struggle. They should also be an occasion for genuine rejoicing. And why should they be an occasion for genuine rejoicing? Because we know God and we know his purpose in pain. That God doesn't just want us to experience pain. God doesn't like it when we suffer. But God knows that through pain and suffering, we become better. We become more like Jesus. Unfortunately, one of the difficulties of human nature is that we don't become better typically when everything is going our way. We become better when we face difficulties. And part of that becoming better has a lot to do with how we choose to respond to those things. And it doesn't mean we, chat, we clap and cheer because there's, there's sadness and there's anger and all of those things. But it's also an occasion for joy because we know God's faithfulness. The difficulties in life are intended by God to refine our faith. You see here where James talks about testing of our faith, Testing of our faith here is not intended to identify or determine if there is faith. He's not talking about whether or not they have faith. He recognizes that they do have faith, but it is to purify faith that already exists. It's to, it's to make that faith worth more. Because we all have experienced, and we, we come to faith in Jesus, our faith isn't really that strong. It's not refined we so go back and forth in our faith. And so what James is saying is, he's saying, look, I want you to have a purified faith. And so I'm gonna talk about these things that have been brought to the surface because of your difficulty. And you're gonna grow in your faith. Your faith is gonna be refined. And you're gonna have greater confidence and boldness in Jesus Christ because you see his faithfulness and his goodness and his holiness. And so as we go forward, as we move through James in our study in these coming weeks and months, there's two things that I want you to remember as a framework. One, that James writes in the greater context of Jesus' teaching, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, that what James says cannot be dismissed because it's come straight from Jesus. That it is simple and practical. I mean, not easy to do, but it is simplified and practical. And it is from the teachings of Jesus, inspired and worked through by the Holy Spirit so that we can understand what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. I would encourage you maybe even just to even better familiarize yourself with what James is saying. I would encourage you this week to read Matthew 5 through 7 the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and see as we walk through James how many things are so similar there that James is just he's, just, he's just marinating in the teachings and life of Christ that everything he says kind of comes right from there. And if you're looking for more to do this week, maybe, I would suggest you read Proverbs 1 through 9 because that's, that's a great framework, a structure 
that, that, that we see James writing in, it, there's a lot of similarities with what James writes with Proverbs one through nine. So if you're looking for something to do this week, Matthew five through seven and Proverbs one through nine might be great, a great area to kind of walk through this week as we get into James. Second thing is this. We need to remember as we walk through this that difficulty reveals issues to work on so that we can become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The trials and difficulties that we face reveal issues that are under our surface that we need to work on that we maybe aren't aware of or are vaguely aware of. That's, that's what James is saying. He's saying, remember, look in, in the context of this. And, and one of the things we're gonna be doing as, as we go forward into the book of James that James gives an incredible opportunity for is because of, because of the issues that were coming up in the early church, during this time of difficulty. And because James is so practical in hitting one thing after another in his writing, it gives us an opportunity to talk biblically about some of the things that we are facing today. We're gonna be looking through James, but we're also gonna be looking at how each thing that James talks about relates to things that we're facing today things that we need to talk about from a biblical perspective, things that might be hard. In fact, the things that we are going to talk about, chances are good that we all hold positions on, that we have strong positions on a number of these things that James talks about and are happening currently in our world today. And here's the thing, the positions that we hold will differ from person to person. Chances are good, I will hold a position and I will talk about that and it will not be exactly the same position that you hold on that thing. And you know what, that's okay. Because there's only one me. And, and in the body of Christ, we will have different positions on different things. What is most important for us to remember as we walk through this though is this, that it is not necessarily my position that is most important, it is my posture that is most important. Within the body of Christ, unity can exist when people have different positions on things, but unity is destroyed when we don't have the correct posture. I don't know if you've ever run into maybe a, a, a random dog and you're not really sure how things are gonna go. But does your position on what that dog is matter in that moment? It really doesn't. It doesn't matter what you think of that dog or what you think of dogs in general. What matters in that moment is your posture because that can go okay if you take the right posture. And in the same way, Jesus gives us the posture that he calls us to take, which is one of humility and submission to Christ and love to one another. And so you and I can hold different positions, but if our posture is not reflective of the humility and the self-sacrificing love Jesus demonstrated, then it doesn't matter what your position is because you're wrong position. Uh, your posture is wrong 
And what we know most about Jesus is his posture because it's his posture that led him to be crucified and raised from the dead. Because there was no other way. And so as we walk through this in coming weeks, I want you to be remembering that we may have some varied positions. Now some positions are dead wrong and some positions are more right than others. But we need to remember that Jesus looks at our posture and we need to remember that. Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for your love for us, how you work in and through us. God, I thank you that you have chosen to be so clear on some things that are so important and so hard for us to do that there is no way for us to be ignorant of what you expect. God, we can ignore and we can reject and we can neglect, but when we do that, we are guilty of disobedience because you are so clear. So Father, I pray as, as we walk through this process and as we submit ourselves to your word, Father, I pray that you would help us to see those things that have been brought to our surface. I pray that we will be able to talk about what affects us and what's going on around us in a way that we can maintain the convictions and the positions that we have that are honoring to you, but we could do that in a posture that reflects the obedience and the humility, Jesus, that you have demonstrated to us. So God, I thank you for what you're doing and what you are going to do in and through us. I pray that we would be obedient and humble and surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.